Hello, and welcome to episode one of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Robert Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Lott. We are both professors here at the University of Texas School of Law. Uh, we've been friends for a long time and Mets fans for even longer. That's right. Uh, and we've been thinking for a while that we ought to put together a podcast given how important the issues are in our area, given how often they come up, and given how much of the public discourse, Bobby, is folks shouting at each other and tweeting past each other. It's true. You often can hear really loudly what one side thinks and really loudly what the other side thinks. What you don't often hear is two people who, who do often disagree, talking civilly to one another about exactly where they might disagree. And, and lo and behold, we often find the disagreement isn't so wide after all. And so the, the aim of the podcast is to provide uh, a timely and up-to-date uh, review by some law-oriented uh, observers of national security developments uh, who are coming at it from slightly different perspectives, but with a lot of mutual respect. And so that's what we're aiming for on the podcast. Uh, eventually, also, we're hoping to have you know some production values, maybe some music. Overrated. May, maybe a name that's a little more interesting than the National Security Law Podcast. It's descriptive. It, it works for Stuart Baker and the Cyber, uh, the Cyber Law Podcast. It ought to work for us. I, I don't know how I feel about a rule where if it works for Stuart Baker, it works for us. But, it works for me. Um, all right. So the reason why we're actually jumping onto the airwaves now uh, when we're sort of the not quite ready for primetime players is as we record this podcast on Wednesday afternoon, uh, January 25th, um, we're at the end of an interesting news day in the world of national security law highlighted by a really significant story this morning, uh, first broken by the New York Times' Charlie Savage, um, soon reported elsewhere by the Washington Post and other outlets, um, about a purported draft executive order um, that President Trump is considering um, that's titled, so far as we can tell, the detention and interrogation of enemy combatants. Now, it's worth stressing that between when that story broke this morning and when we're recording this podcast, uh, the White House Press Secretary, Sean Spicer, um, has said from the podium of the White House briefing room that this document is, quote, not a White House document, unquote. We're not really sure what that means, but insofar as this might be a policy proposal soon to go to the desk of President Trump, we thought it would be worthwhile to sit down, to walk through it, to talk about what's interesting about it, what might be Bobby controversial about it, um, and what you, the listeners, both the experts in the field and hopefully the lay people, hi mom, um, <laughs> you know, what you should know, what you should care about, why this is a big deal. So. Bobby, you want to sort of jump in from there? Sure. And, and to be clear, we're, we're just going to run through this document. Uh, if you're listening to this and you're actually at a desk or someplace where you can call up the document, Steve, what do you think the best way to have someone search quickly and get their hands on it? Um, what Bobby and I, when we tweet out this podcast link, we will also tweet out the document. Good point. Okay. And, and, and this by is the way, if you want to follow to us on Twitter, Bobby is at Bobby Chesney, and I am at Steve underscore Vladek, uh, which Bobby thinks is because at Steve Vladek was already taken, to which I say there really aren't that many Steve Vladeks in the world. To which I say you snooze, you lose, you didn't get it. You got to get out there. Seriously. All right. On, on to business. Uh, page one of the document is a cover page. At the top, it says, Executive Order-Detention and Interrogation of Enemy Combatants Explanatory Statement. Um, and it's it's actually it looks like kind of a track changes kind of document. Um, that, that was perhaps the first clue, Bobby, that this might not be the final version of the executive order going to President no, Trump's No desk. question about that. This is, this is I, I think my best guess here is what you've got here is someone at the staff level um, has been working away, no doubt with direction to do so, on a draft, a lot of what is in here is entirely consistent with what I was expecting to see. I have a, I have a post up in my 
annals of the Trump administration blog post series, link number two, list a bunch of executive orders and other executive decisions that I expected to see reversed pretty quickly, and a lot of it's in here. Um, so this is obviously a work in progress. Whether it came out because someone's trying to undermine it or advance it, hard to say. We're just trying to clarify how you should look at it or what we think is interesting about it. And indeed, what might be the big questions to ask if and when a formal executive order on the same topic does emerge from this White House? That's right. So um, just real quick on the on the first page, I don't want to bog down on the explanatory statement too much. Although I do want to point out the typo about the atrocities of September 11th, 2011. Oh, yeah, this is this is good. It's the, the second full sentence refers to the 9-11 attacks and has a bit of a bit of a decade-long error there. The, the folks at Guantanamo who are saying that they can't be prosecuted for pre-9-11 offenses might enjoy that. In, in, well, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That actually comes up. There's a reference. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, the phrase global war on terrorism was used in the original draft and it struck out a couple of points. And a new phrase, uh, this actually doesn't appear until the second paragraph, the fight against radical Islamism. Uh, so if, if the global war on terrorism, Steve, was the guat, uh, it's been away for a while, but it's it's referenced here. But someone thought better of it and said, "Gives us the ferry, the fight against <laughs> the fight against radical Islamism." Um, there's nothing that strikes me in the first paragraph is all that different from you know how things actually have been. Talking about it being an armed conflict, talking about being global in nature, involving ISIS, Al Qaeda, the Taliban, and associated forces. That's all sort of standard fare for the past well, four presidential terms. At least that's how I see it. Do you, does that seem right to you? Yeah, I mean, I actually think the first and third paragraphs are pretty boilerplate, and indeed you and I probably could have written them, you know, if we had had the same goals coming yeah. into this, this To be clear, we didn't. We We're didn't. not this first. <laughs> um, otherwise, we would have had this podcast ready to go with some music and production values. That's right. Um, the second paragraph, Bobby, to me is what's interesting, right? Because it's the second paragraph of the explanatory statement where you actually get a, a feel for the purpose of this thing. Um, and there are a number of references in the second paragraph um, basically framed as criticisms yeah, of the Obama right. administration for, I mean, let's be frank, being soft um, on the threat posed by these particular terrorist groups, um, rejecting in an executive order CIA black sites, um, mm -hmm. right, prohibiting particular interrogation methods, um, vowing to close Guantanamo. Mm -hmm. There's even a reference, the, the draft switches to the passive voice and talks about the exposure of national security secrets uh, to the enemy, which I assume is a reference to Snowden. Not sure how that's the Obama administration's I, I, fault. I read that a little differently. I, I thought that was more tied in with all the public discussion of the OLC memos and other things that elaborated on the details of interrogation techniques. Either way, I mean, I think the, yeah. the, the clear purpose of this paragraph is to say we are restoring policies that our predecessors yeah. got rid of because we think that by getting rid of those policies, our predecessor has made us weaker and less safe. I'll flag one thing in that paragraph. So again, we're talking about the middle paragraph of the explanatory statement, which is a sort of a short litany of things that were uh, Obama administration policy decisions that are being framed here as, as pulling back on the throttle. Uh, one of them refers to the military commissions, and in the passive voice there is the following language. There also occurred an extended inter interruption in the military commission process. Um, I think that's actually, that one, the other ones I think are, you know, fair as a descriptive matter as things that happen. This one seems a bit unfair. Yes, there, there was not that long of an interruption of the commission process. And um, much to the dismay of some of the Obama supporters, Obama ended up, you know, signing into law and supporting passage of the revised Military Commissions Act and, and indeed kind of pouring resources, and I will add talent in the form of Mark Martins, 
uh, into the commission process and rather to the surprise of many observers actually was pushing the commission process when a lot of people thought he wouldn't. So I mean, we'll, we'll get back to this if and when we get to section eight, if you guys actually make it all the way to section eight of the order. Um, but I do think, I mean, one of the interesting questions that arises from both Bobby this draft and from basically our whole field is to what extent we're gonna see radical breaks from Obama administration practices and to what extent we're actually gonna see continuity. Yes. So with that in mind, should we dive into the, the text of the order itself? Let's do it. So let's start with radical breaks. Uh, so section one of the proposed a guess, draft, whatever we're calling this executive order, um, titled Revocation of Executive Orders, um, and it revokes two executive orders signed by President Obama on January 22nd, 2009. Um, executive Order 13491, this is the Ensuring Lawful Interrogations Executive Order. This was designed to formally close secret CIA prisons, known as black sites. Um, this was designed to impose, as a matter of executive branch policy, um, a requirement that all US interrogations comply with particular domestic and international standards. Um, and then Executive Order 13492, this is, I think, the more visible one, yes. was the closed Guantanamo executive order. Um, seems to me you didn't really need to revoke it. Um, since it didn't happen. Um, what's interesting to me is what's missing from this list, Bobby, right? So Executive right. Order 13567, which is the executive order President Obama signed to create the periodic review board process at Guantanamo, not repealed. Ah, not yet. Be patient, Steve. It, it, this is this is no doubt coming. Or more specifically, a, uh, I have little doubt that the administration will get around to altering the PRB review process vis-a-vis -vis Guantanamo detainees. They're not going to get rid of it entirely, I suspect, um, but they're probably going to re-engineer exactly which agencies are represented mm -hmm. and, and probably look for ways to build into it a little bit more of a disposition to be hesitant to transfer and release, or at least to be seen to be doing that. So I think that's coming, but you're right, missing from, from this document. So jump into section two. These are the findings. Bobby, I don't know about you, but what struck me in this uh, a set of four sort of subparagraphs of findings um, is especially subparagraph C. Yeah, I marked that one too. Um, right, so subparagraph C uh, tells us and asserts from the desk of the president that over 30% of detainees released from Guantanamo have returned to armed conflict according to, um, side note from me, unsighted, quote, unclassified reporting, unquote. Bobby, this 30% number, where is this coming from? Here's what interests me about this. I'm going I'm to play a different uh, angle on this question. The old law professor don't yeah, answer sorry, the question. Yeah, sorry. If you ask, you ask a law professor a question, he just goes in a different direction. Um, it says you've got 30% of detainees going back to the armed conflict in, in some sort of sense. Um, I don't have a doubt for a second that there is some version of that number. It may or may not be 30%. There's some version of that number that's a reasonably fair description of people uh, getting involved in extremist violence, again, almost... I don't, I don't think there's any doubt about that. The, the implicit criticism here is that whatever the number is, 30% or otherwise, is intolerable. Um, I would love to know, I don't think anybody necessarily knows this, but I'd love to know what the comparable percentage is for releases from um, all the detention facilities in Afghanistan over the years, all the detention facilities in Iraq during the years of our large footprint operation there. I guarantee you there is some percentage of what you would call false negative releases, releases that turn out to be unfortunate because the person goes back and maybe, maybe kills people, maybe kills American forces. This is endemic in any situation where you are not actually holding everyone the entire time. And there's, there's a corollary to it. The, the, the more you take measures procedurally to err against that false negative release, the higher you're necessarily driving up your false positives, detaining people you shouldn't. 
And the reason why you don't hear or didn't typically hear in Iraq and Afghanistan in the combat zone setting, despite the scale of detentions and releases being much, much bigger, and, and the connection to immediate possible responses on the battlefield that result in American deaths uh, being much stronger and tighter, you can hear a lot about it because some of this is, is, has to be balanced off against the need in a, especially in a counterinsurgency or guerrilla warfare type environment, to, to not be too aggressive with your detention policies lest you create more problems than you're solving. So I agree with all that. I would just add two additional uh, uh, sort of points. The first is um, there's an assumption in that statistic um, that everyone who was initially detained at Guantanamo was properly uh, removed from the armed conflict, right, by the use of the word returned. To armed conflict. Of course, we know better. We know that there were a ton of false positives, Bobby, right, and a number of detainees who were released because the government did not have enough evidence, um, right, to substantiate their detention. In some cases, because the government concluded that they were not, in fact, who they thought they were. It's it's certainly possible that let's let's take this number at face value: thirty percent return to the battlefield in some plausible sense, That's or two hundred. Oh, right. I'm making you roll your eyes too much. Let's let's say it's fifteen percent. Okay. Um, for the sake of argument, I'm perfectly willing to believe that of that fifteen percent. There's some sub-percentage that are people who got involved in violence afterwards who actually weren't properly identified in the front end that's possible, but I'd be very surprised if that's all of them. Oh, no, I, I agree yeah. with that. So that, that leads me to my second point, which is um, there's a fascinating opinion by D.C. Circuit Judge Douglas Ginsburg um, concurring in the by now completely overtaken October 2012 D.C. Circuit panel decision in the Salim Hamdan Military Commission mm -hmm. appeal where Ginsburg went out of his way um, to actually compare and contrast the recidivism rate that the government alleged was true for Guantanamo detainees with ordinary violent felons, mm. um, and found that actually, at least based on the data that was presented to the court at the time, it was lower among Guantanamo detainees than we would expect in a conventional criminal context. So, I, I, listen, I don't mean to say that there isn't recidivism, just that it seems to me problematic in any number of regards to simply assert what I think is the most aggressive version of that statistic I've ever publicly seen. Are you surprised? I'm not surprised, um, but I, I reserve the right to be disappointed by my lack of surprise. I guess what this conversation highlights, and we should, we're really kind of talking about the framing still and the optics of it, but what it highlights is that when it comes to Guantanamo releases, there is definitely a tendency to view this through a sort of a special prism. And, and we bring to bear metrics or standards or conditions that you know, are, are not seemingly often employed or weren't, I think, employed in vetting or observing what was going on That's in right. battlefield detentions. Right. Um, and I think it, it, we all understand why. The politics of this are different. That's right. So, yeah. so Bobby, in the, in the interest of trying to keep our audience, um, those three of you who are still listening, um, alongside the sort of larger conversation, let me actually suggest that we skip over the various parts of the order that are simply asking for reports um, and jump to what you see as the big substantive points in this document. Okay, do you want to, let's skip number three, which asserts there's a continuing state of armed conflict. That's, I don't see that as being particularly different from where we've been. Um, section four focuses on military detention at Guantanamo. Um, it calls, in effect, it's the opposite of, of Obama's order. It's just saying, in effect, we should have uh, we should have and make use of Guantanamo going forward, including newly captured alien enemy combatants. Steve, no surprise here. Exactly what we expect to see. It's exactly what we expected, but let me just flag one interesting way in which sections three and four tie together. Um, and this is a point, Bobby, that you've made in blog posts over and over again. Insofar as the Trump administration in section three is committing to the Obama administration's view that the Islamic State is covered 
by the military force authorized by Congress, whether in the 2001 authorization for use of military force or in the 2002 Iraq AUMF, the, the, the prospect of new detainees at Guantanamo dramatically raises the possibility that a court in the context of a habeas petition would actually be forced to address the validity Absolutely. of that interpretation of the AUMFs. Yeah, Congress and the White House in the Obama years got away with everyone saying, yes, we support the fight against the Islamic State. Yes, we ought to update the AUMF. No, we're not going to actually do that because we can't quite agree on the details of what would go in that. And it didn't really matter, which is a substantial reason why no one felt like they had to iron out those details, because nothing really turned on it in practice. The, the fighting continued and the money was allocated. But if you get a Guantanamo detainee who's an asserted Islamic State member, it's already it's pre-established that there will be habeas review there. And presumably the uh, first uh, bullet point in the argument is going to be that uh, you know, the AMF, either the 2001 or 2002 AMF doesn't apply. Now, I think the government's probably going to win on that. I've come around to that view. But it'll get litigated, which is an interesting development that's different from the past. And indeed, and if the government loses on that argument, Bobby, that could actually be the one thing that finally motivates Congress to take up the mantle of a new AUMF for ISIS. And of course, a good executive branch lawyer would look at that prospect and think, huh, well, that's a reason why we should get behind pushing a revision to the AUMF, so as to create certainty for this project of bringing captured Islamic State members to Guantanamo. If you really want that to work, go ahead and get that statutory clarification. Or a nervous executive branch lawyer might say, this is a reason to not bring any Islamic State detainees to Guantanamo. Indeed, and, and the, the jury remains out on whether they'll really do it. They may all stay in theater. For all we know, there are several of them at this moment. Um, and in that regard, let me take this opportunity to suggest that it's not clear um, under current DC Circuit precedent that habeas wouldn't run to in-theater detentions, especially because the D.C. Circuit has said that after Boumediene, the habeas statute has reverted to its pre-2004 form. So, How does this relate to the Makala Afghanistan so litigation? Ma the Makala litigation was before the D.C. Circuit's Amr decision, where the only question the court was considering was whether those detainees were protected by the suspension clause. Um, it's entirely possible, indeed I've argued at some length in posts on lawfare that it is indeed the right answer that because the D.C. Circuit in Amr has said, wholly apart from the suspension clause, the Boumediene decision returns the statute to its pre-2005 status quo, there might be statutory jurisdiction, mm -hmm. even if there's no constitutional uh, requirement of the writ. I'll t this is going to be on the public record. I will go on the record now saying that I will not expect to see any ultimately final ruling extending habeas jurisdiction to in-theater uh, detention facilities in Iraq or Syria. We'll see. All right, so um, that sort of covers the, the, the big structural stuff. Bobby, how about we pivot to interrogation? Yeah, okay, so obviously the general thrust here is to, is to begin the process of uh, following through on the campaign promise of the president to bring back the EITs, the enhanced interrogation techniques. We call them torture. Waterboarding, you name it, or, or worse, I believe, that the president at one point said. Um, the obstacle that stands in the way of all this, of course, is that the, the, the constraints that are in place right now are not just Obama executive orders and policies, but their statute uh, as well. And Steve, do you want to describe for the folks listening all three of them? Is that what we decided? There's three? There are at least three. Let's, listen, let's listen. Do you hear it? 
Yeah, it's, I hear one elliptical machine and somebody's driving. Okay, so there's somebody there. Um, talk about what the McCain-Feinstein Amendment uh, does by way of locking into statute constraints, and then we can kind of relate that to what's at work here. Sure. So the two statutes that I think were most important in this conversation before McCain-Feinstein um, were the War Crimes Act of 1996, which makes it a crime for U.S. personnel to commit what are called grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions. Um, there's a pretty good argument, although not Bobby, a universally accepted one, that torture is a grave breach of the Geneva Conventions. Um, but there's also an even more specific statute. I, I, would, I would say it's no, a no-brainer that torture is a grave breach. Well, uh, how about this? There's disagreement as to what constitutes torture. No, that the part, there's, you're All right. right. And, um, and, so, and so too for cruel and human degrading treatment. Indeed. Um, and so Congress, at least in theory, um, partially remedied this problem in the Anti-Torture Act. This is 18 U.S.C. Section 2340A, which is designed to implement the United States' treaty obligations under the UN Convention Against Torture and other forms of cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment. Um, but as folks may recall from the Bush administration, this is the statute that was controversially interpreted by the Office of Legal Counsel mm -hmm. within the Justice Department um, very narrowly to not cover most of the interrogation methods, Bobby, that we've discussed, and indeed to be unconstitutional insofar as it would prohibit those interrogation methods the president deemed to be necessary to extract vital intelligence from enemy combatants during wartime. Now, the latter part eventually gets retracted and left eff effectively unspoken. That, that, that part of the analysis gets withdrawn. The first part, the, uh, the, the, the treaty and statutory analysis of which, how, the treaty, how the techniques matched up with torture as a category and with CID as a category, that was there. That stayed on the books. And I think that's where McCain-Feinstein comes from. So right. for better or for worse, and I think we, Bobby and I both think that there are better ways Congress could have run this particular railroad, the McCain-Feinstein Amendment is basically an effort to say, listen, we're never going to win the fight over how to categorically and conclusively define what is and is not torture. So instead of going that way, let's limit every U.S. interrogator wearing any kind of uniform or no uniform to a list of methods that's already written down somewhere else. And Bobby, the place they look to was the Army Field Manual. Yeah, Field Manual 2-22.3 um, is the, uh, the, the standard listing, the, the doctrine on how you conduct interrogations uh, for the Army writ large. And now everybody's beholden First, by executive order from the president when it was Obama, and then by statutory obligation, everyone's beholden to this set of, of constraints. So, and Bobby, if, if President Trump has repealed, right, if this goes into force and he repeals and rescinds those executive orders, what work does the statute do? The statute does all the work, right, in that case. It, the executive order, I've, I've had this on my exam a few times in recent years, um, the executive order is kind of a red herring at this point because it's been codified. The question is, what does the statute do? And so what we're going to do now is we're going to, we're going to go into the weeds a little bit in the statute because it's really interesting how thoughtful they were in, in trying to prevent what is the obvious end run. The end run around the whole thing, of course, would be to direct for the president to direct the military, revise the field manual, and put in all the methods you want them to use. But, you know, it's not actually that easy. So if you actually look at the McCain-Feinstein Amendment, or if you just trust us that we're not misreading it to you, um, it comes as Section 1045 of the Fiscal Year 2016 National Defense Authorization Act. This is Public Law 114-92, entered into law in November 2015. Um, and what Section 1045 says, Bobby, um, is it allows, indeed it requires, the Army to revise the field manual. But here's the interesting language in Section 1045A6A not sooner 
than three years after the date of enactment of this act, so no sooner than late November 2018. Why, Steve? Why would anyone do that? Well, presumably because then you can't mess with it, right? Mm. Because it's a periodic review and not an as-needed, ad hoc, let's just change it because we need it. By the way, just to add a little more color to this and show you the, the nuance they were working with in the drafting, once you get past November 25th, 2018, is it all bets are off? And, and you then can the very it? next provision says, and once every three years thereafter. Yeah, so you get once one bite at the apple every three years starting November 25th, 2018. Which means in this case, right, that no matter what President Trump wants to do, he is bound by the existing Army Field Manual until at the very least November 25th, 2018. And indeed, Bobby, that timing also probably relieves some of the political pressure um, to revise the manual as on an as-needed basis. Why, that's after elections. Interesting. Why, that's very interesting. Interesting. Well, let's relate that to this uh, draft order. Section 5 of the draft order says, The SECDEF shall, in consultation with the Attorney General and others, review the interrogation policies in the manual and make such modifications as, quote, consistent with the law for the safe, lawful, and effective interrogation, so on and so on. Um, the upshot is the, the section, if enacted, would direct this process of changing the field manual to do something. But in fact, the statute does not allow them to do that right now. And so then the question just becomes whether we would see a memorandum from the new Office of Legal Counsel um, suggesting that there's some reason why this three-year waiting period um, either is inapplicable, which I have a hard time seeing, the text seems fairly no, it clear. it seems clearly applicable. Or whether it might be unconstitutional. Are you suggesting that the Commander-in-Chief might claim that the statute improperly and unconstitutionally interferes with his Commander-in-Chief Article II authorities in a, oh, let's call it a Commander-in-Chief override? The more, the more things change, the more they stay the same? Well, there's some articles out there. Go. It's time to find uh, Marty Lederman and David Barron's terrific two-volume uh, Two, two, uh, two volume piece on this very topic. The commander in chief at the lowest ebb in the Harvard Law Review. So, so Bobby, that's the heart of, of the sort of the anti torture piece of the McCain Feinstein Amendment. What I've always found interesting about the McCain Feinstein Amendment is it also includes a Red Cross access requirement. Yes, this is very important. In Section 1045B. Now, listen, we don't mean to suggest that the Red Cross is going to save us all from all human rights abuses ever, but Bobby, why is Red Cross access in this context a big deal? Look, I, I think that uh, the idea that there's any security gain to be had by preventing detainees from having contact with a Red Cross representative, uh, you can imagine what the argument might be. So let's start there. The argument must be that at one effective interrogation technique involves this sort of complete isolation of the person from anyone halfway friendly, halfway willing to seem like they're looking out for their interest. Therefore, I suppose the theory is, so therefore, don't let them meet that ICRC rep. Um, First of all, that sort of approach really presents a challenge, I think, between um, our principles and, and who we think we are and why we think we're the good guys in these fights. Um, it is something that I think my, my conversations over the years with service members um, much more often than not suggest that they view the, the ICRC as a value add, not a detraction, including in, the, in this context. And I would just add, right, that the, the, the other thing about Red Cross access is it makes it impossible for the United States to completely disappear detainees. Certainly so. That, no, that's the whole point of this, is so that no one's actually fully disappeared. Uh, I'm not aware of any evidence 
that as a result of Red Cross knowledge about a particular detainee, that there was some sort of exposure of information or anything like that. I think the only argument has to be something about how, but we're trying to create this cocoon of total control and that interferes with it. Um, I think there are better ways to manage that. Now, the reason why I raised the Red Cross requirement, Bobby, is because Charlie's reporting this morning actually led with what to me was a fairly controversial statement that one of the things that the proposed executive order was going to do was cut off Red Cross access, um, which right. to me would be a blatant and textbook violation of Section 1045B of the NDAA. It just wouldn't be effective. It wouldn't be effective. Now, um, I guess the question is, I don't see anything in the draft that was circulated specifically providing that. Is it possible that instead what's going on is the nod toward the resumption of a CIA detention program? Well, look, the original Black Side program was it's called Black Side for a reason. The idea was you go in there, no one knows, and there, there are both thought to be interrogation-related advantages to having someone in that cocoon, but also operational security advantages in that, that no one realizes whether for sure that person got captured or they disappeared for some other reason. And I suppose this is some sort of notion that you got to leave the ICRC out of it so that you can complete that, that enclosure. I just, I just don't think uh, it's sustainable. The statute bars it. And more importantly, let's never forget in the context of all this, the importance of how our allies in the foreign liaison services were interacting with how important this is. Um, this is not going to fly with any of our allies. Uh, maybe, maybe I should rephrase that. It's not going to fly with any of our NATO allies. Mm -hmm. so, so with that in mind, Bobby, let's, let, me, let me pivot us to Section 7. Because um, it seems to me that in many ways, Section 7 is the centerpiece of this document, right? Section 7 is titled, Policy Review and Recommendations Concerning a Program of Interrogation Operated by the CIA. So in a world in which we have the McCain-Feinstein Amendment, in a world in which the Army Field Manual cannot be revised before November 25th, 2018, in a world in which federal law requires ICRC access to all detainees, what is the value of a CIA as opposed to a military detention program? Well, I'm probably not the right person to make that argument because I don't, I don't see the value in this. I think that it, it unleashes many more problems than it solves. Um, let's bear in mind that this isn't a choice between should we bring people to the United States for civilian criminal prosecution or should we have them in detention without criminal charge under color of the laws of war? This is an argument that begins from the premise that, well, you've got the military to do it and they've been doing it and can begin doing it more often now. That's a separate discussion. Uh, JSOC can do this. You can JSOC have, is the Joint Special Operations Command. You can have any number of range of military options for doing this. The idea of a special value add for the CIA to do it originally back during the Bush administration was thought to be that um, you could spin up a more sophisticated, more deeply intertwined with the uh, insights of the analysts type of operation. with Less more... judicially reviewable. Well, but I'm talking about just why, why choose between, say, a special operations administered versus a, a CIA administered operation. And yep. the idea was, look, what you wanted, you want these sort of middle-aged uh, civilian interrogation professionals, which actually ends up not being, I think, much of a description at all of what initially was the operation. In any event, uh, I think that the experience over the years, especially of special operators in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and the, the types of professionalism in this setting that they can bring to bear suggests that there's not a particular need. And, and one is tempted to conclude at the end of the day that this is a little bit more, this whole thing is a little bit more about optics and, and the signaling that this is, this is a concrete signal uh, we are tougher on terrorism. Yeah, I, th I think there's something to that. I don't think there's a, really more of a, a substantive explanation for it on this particular dimension. You're, this is opening up a can of worms that you really don't 
truly need. So I guess with that in mind, Bobby, maybe we can close out, unless I'm missing anything else obvious, um, with Section 7C, um, which encourages the review that the order requires to recommend any legislative proposals that would be necessary to protect our national security and to permit the resumption of an effective and lawful interrogation Well, program. there's a big one we haven't mentioned. We've got to mention it now. Back in the McCain-Feinstein Amendment, uh, in the language that talks about how you can only revisit the field manual once every three years starting in November 2018, that's not all it says. It also says that the revision, and let me get the language right in front of me. Here the papers wrestle. They're really here. There are production values, people. And the final, the final part of the passage, and the practices for interrogation described therein do not involve the use or threat of force. So in this statute, there is a substantive constraint. When updated, whenever they update it, the statute says you can't add a method that involves the use or threat of force. Steve, uh, waterboarding, use of force? So I think that's a no-brainer, right? But I also think that there's just enough wiggle room um, as my watch goes off. Again, our production values are awesome. Yeah, they are. Um, just enough wiggle room that a sufficiently motivated president or government lawyer could try to make the case that it isn't. Um, yeah. The good news, Bobby, right, is that this is at least 18 months away um, and that we have at least now this interim period where no matter what the president wants to do, he's constrained by the existing draft, right, of the field manual. If, if you imagine a president who's perhaps impatient, if you can imagine that. I, I can't imagine that, Bobby. And some, some poor lawyer at some point is going to have to raise their hand and say, uh, guys, there, there's a statute that says we can't do anything like this until November 2018. Now, that's, that's going to be an awkward moment. But then somebody is then going to say, well, hold on. Let's, let's throw an amendment in to the next National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, Steve, what do you think is going to happen when uh, Chairman McCain <laughs> gets a hold of that one? So, I think, so this is, I think, where I want to conclude, um, unless we're missing anything obvious, including a, a chance to dump on the military commissions a little bit. We can save that for a future podcast. I, I won't necessarily dump on him. I will say that. I'll dump on him. All right, all right. We'll leave that there. But, you know, this is the reason why you guys need to come back for episodes two and beyond. And beyond. Um, but turning to Congress, I, mean, I actually think this is, Bobby, not just in our field, but in a whole universe of questions about the scope of how much the Trump administration can really accomplish. How much can he get the support of the moderate Senate Republicans? Yeah. And McCain, to me, at least on these issues, is the linchpin, not just because of his authority as chairman of the Armed Services Committee, um, but because McCain is so out and uh, proactive and in front of questions of detainee treatment. And basically any bill that he views as a threat to his very, I think, progressive position on the subject is dead in the water. No, I think it's uh, between Senator Graham and Senator McCain, there's, I think, no chance that they're going to get a statutory amendment, certainly not through the NDAA, which is the usual vehicle for this. They're not going to be able to get a change in there. So I think this, I think they're going to find that some of the stuff that's in the draft, some of the stuff they most want to accomplish, can't actually be done. That may be enough to you know to, to send the signal to show that they're following through on these campaign promises. And if if for forces beyond their control they can't do it, you know, so be it. So I guess Bobby, this, this you know, we've been talking about this for about half an hour. Is the bottom line? on this draft executive order that it's, you know, a whole lot of noise, but not a lot of, not a lot of teeth? I think that some of the most uh, alarming parts of it for many observers aren't actually going to materialize. But here's the thing, and I think uh, Jack Goldsmith blogged about this earlier today. 
there's a lot of harm that comes just from the fact that this draft was out there today. There's a lot of harm in the sense of how it further alarms allies whom we actually need to depend on in important ways, especially intelligence sharing for our security. And this, in, in class today, Steve and I were co-teaching and talking to the students about the importance of looking not just at the immediate short-term uh, cost-benefit trade-off of a security policy, but also the longer-term impact and trade-offs, including unintended consequences. Well, here there's some pretty foreseeable harms on the security side of the ledger that come from, from waving this particular flag, so that's I, unfortunate. I want to offer one more harm, and this is actually a harm to the government's own agenda, um, which is having this kind of document out there and signaling at least a desire to pursue, to explore, returning to some of the controversial and in some cases repudiated practices and legal theories of the past 10, 15 years is also to me a pretty powerful signal to the courts. Um, right, it's a powerful signal to the courts at the very time that the Supreme Court has just received its first major cert petition in a military commission case, in the Nishiri case. Um, another major case in the military commissions is about to get to the Supreme Court, Al-Balul. These are obviously things we're going to talk about in future podcasts. Bobby, I, I actually think that this probably hurts more than it helps on that regard because, if anything, it is a reminder to the Supreme Court that the work that they thought might have been done by the Hamdan and Bimedian decisions back in 2006-2008 um, is very much still under contest. I think that it's certainly the case that that's true at some level. I also think it's probably overdetermined insofar as there's sort of a, um, a political capital market for a given executive branch amongst judges in general, how much trust there is and all that. <laughs> I think that this, this administration's coming in with a bit of a deficit there on a, on a lot of these issues. And, and that's including among a lot of Republican judges mm -hmm many of whom are going to be very sensitive to uh, concerns about an overwinning central government. Indeed, concerns that very much could become a very popular subject in the impending confirmation hearing of the next justice of the United States Supreme uh, Court. Looking forward to your nomination, Steve, and see how you handle those questions in front of the judiciary Yeah, I, I think you'll be waiting a long time, my friend. Oh, well, good. You can stay here and teach with me. Indeed. So anyway, uh, that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for listening to our first episode. Please do send us feedback. Bobby is at Bobby Chesney on Twitter. I am at Steve underscore Vladek. We're also both very easily Googleable um, or your search engine of choice. We hope to be back on a regularly periodic basis, preferably with some production values and maybe with a better name. Until then, thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. Adios.